Chapter 2. Don't Touch My Balls Patch I guess I can thank my friends, old and new, for some of this change in tack. I had a friend called Robert who was very interested in deformed ostriches. I don't know where Bob is now, but I can probably guess he's in Floaterville. In fact, most of my friends back then were floaters. I don't mean that they were turds or that they could actually levitate. I mean they were semi-detached, slippery people who hovered on the skirts of society. I used to know a guy called Camille, whose mother worked on the Yellow Submarine. There was a neo-Marxist foster kid who was obsessed with Black Sabbath, who disappeared under the wheels of a Ford Capri one winter morning. There was Blob, a guy who used to laugh so much in school that one day his liver exploded. All floaters, you see. All so lonesome they could cry, braving death and organic rupture for the sake of originality. School is a breeding ground for types like these. That was the fault of the teachers, such as Mufti. The following signal was intercepted and decoded by a satellite put into orbit by the Japanese cat food conglomerate Pussycut 25. The satellite subsequently exploded. Japanese scientists sent the message in tape form to an underground station. The aggressive containers used by the covert station imploded under the sinister energies and into the wet brain of a young man working on a waste incineration plant in North London. Through his hands, this message reached textual climax. Mr. Mufti was our advanced English teacher. He was a bona fide literary genius. He invented an effect. William Burroughs invented heavy metal, Captain Beefheart invented big-eyed beans from Venus, and Mufti invented the golf course head. Nicknamed Julius due to his uncanny resemblance to that doomed Roman, Mufti was a curious character who communicated to his pupils indirectly through other pupils. He knew a lot about the classics and was a shy, withdrawn man. The girlies loved him and flocked around him, but the boilies hated him. He was enigmatic and randomly cruel. He had a small depression in the centre of his scalp exactly the same shape and size as a golf hole. We fantasised about putting a shining white ball across the slope of his head. The more perverse among us wondered what it would feel like to sink a flag into his head or use a driver to score a hole in one. Our lessons were odd affairs. Somehow, Blob and I managed to convince Robert that our mathematics teacher, Mr Delu, could fly. We described his aerial loops around the classroom, how he dived and soared, making the most of the few thermals near the ceiling to coast through equations and common denominators. Bob believed us. I almost stained my trousers when I saw Bob peeking through the door hoping to catch the air show. Automatic biography. Queasy memoirs. Written by David Goodchild. Teachers become grotesques, with ridiculous names who occupy the young mind like speeding goblins. An ancient master called Gut, who played badminton every day and used his racket to tan a thousand hides. Gut wasn't fat. In fact, I never understood the ramifications of his name. And of course, I never asked. Afraid to commit a social faux pas, which at 15 is like having a shotgun round up your colon. I remember my teachers like blurs. Like Hieronymus Bosch had shot them with a Kodak fun camera. In the picture you can see our woodwork teacher almost taking a boy's head off with a plane. You can see games teachers with whiny voices, amnesiac metalwork masters, sexy games mistresses and senile supply teachers. These poor bastards were trying to give us an education.
My weird adolescence deepened like a purple stain into a weirder cocoon of adulthood when I went to Devon to be a chef and ended up a drunkard who turned up at the training restaurant in a waiter's uniform that hadn't been washed in weeks. I sold helium balloons with a couple of sex-crazed girls called Candy and Sherry. I was fast approaching madness ground zero. On one particularly horror-splattered day, I was dropped off in Dorchester at 9 in the morning, was told to get off the street by a policeman at 9.10 and spent the rest of the day stuck in an alleyway with a hundred balloons, alternately swearing and clenching my bladder. When Candy and Sherry came to pick me up at 5, I hurled piss balloons at their amazed and ruddy faces. Chapter 3. Poem for Tapeworm and Harmonica Enough of my sick life! How about some good old parasite poems? This form of verse has its origins in the leech lyrics of the Yoruba, part of the Ifka oracle designed to cover any sticky bug. The tic-tac-tone poems of the Ciliars and the flea verse of Western Europe. Parasite poetry always touches on the same subject matter. The often problematic though intensely passionate relationship between parasite and host. The initial repulsion of physical attack followed by a filthy euphoria and the sheer pleasure to be gained from feeding a bug in your gut. Tapeworm, I love your parasite ooze. Give me the blues, take me some old tune. With fuzzed up guitar and melody sweet, dragging along in my gut with your feet. Tapeworm, I love you. Love your parasite ooze. Drink my booze with a manic gulp. Dig your hooks in baby blue. Tapeworm, I love your slimy style. Along with bile and vitreous humour, you are my favourite luminous ooze. Give me the blues, sing a sad song. Tied to your deep rhythm like a sliding white ghost, I lick your roast skin with a grateful organ. Tapeworm, you are a marvellous infester, passing in my alimentary canal. I'm paying my dues to your violent smile, spreading the news of your sickly movements, convulsing with fast shivers while you use my intestines to play the blues of the unknown parasite. Masking tapeworm, cello tapeworm, blank tapeworm, video tapeworm, worm my short fuse, purveyor of goose and hot, wet medicine. Take me some old blues number while your lips blow my fuse. My mind is infested with horror. I am convinced that the human brain contains a small spherical sac which holds a hideous race of minute monsters which are released from grey tubes at night to fly through our nightmares. I got hold of an Ojibwe dream catcher to seal my dream portal but they got through it. Geiger got his idea from Alien for my mind nightmares. Ditto Mary Shelley for Frankenstein's monster, ditto David Cronenberg for Brood, ditto Jim Henson for the Muppets. I have christened this filthy organism the Banana Clutch. I have never seen anything like it. It is a dirty, yellow, shabby-looking thing, shaped like a banana, with no discernible eyes or orifices of any kind. There is a huge claw at one end, and the thing launches itself with incredible power along the ground by some hidden means. Its only purpose is to shred and rend human flesh in the most painful way possible. It does not eat human beings, it just fucks them up. I woke up one night sweating with fear, the smell of fish cakes in the air, how on earth did I manage to manufacture such an abomination? Such a detailed ghoul? I had to recruit a brain surgeon immediately. The last thing I wanted running around in my brain was a race of filthy banana flesh rapists. I had enough problems. 
the day before, somebody had brought me a new jumper and I had to update and rearrange my clothing database. I thought this might be a ploy to delay my contact with the brain surgery community. Paranoia always makes my toes burn. As I felt the first rays of that familiar prickly heat melting my athlete's foot, I pulled the ripcord and got the hell out of there. Worth noting that the contents of this queasy memoir may not represent the current mental state and life experience of the author who is now 51 years old. Apologies for any offence, it was all intentional. Automatic Biography Queasy Memoirs Written by David Goodchild Read, edited and published by Mike Pierce it is imperative that you wash your limbs and arteries down with bleach and formaldehyde after exposure to this rabbit signal.